Okay. We got a lot of pen. We have a lot of pen people in the church too, which helps. So, all right. Page number thirteen. Where is where we're going to be at the bottom? So, um, okay. All right. The origin of sin. So last week, oh, I got to get my pointer going. A man without a clicker can't go very far. Here we go. Okay. Last week we talked about how when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they gave wrong answers to these questions. This is where we ended last last week. What is true? What is right? And who am I? That's where we finished off last week. And, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious, but it's helpful to think through how their sin contributed to wrong answers to those questions. Well, this week, uh, as you see on your notes, we're going to be talking about headship, sin and headship, because that's a major aspect of how sin has gotten from the garden, well, initially from Satan, through the garden to us. Because I stated multiple times last week, and I didn't catch any disagreement, I don't think there would be any disagreement, how little children have a natural tendency to do what is wrong. Right now, there's also innocence there too. Of course, uh, you know Jesus talked about uh, childlike faith. Okay, there's a, an innocent faith that we are to have when we come to Christ. Uh, but notice he didn't say childish faith. Faith, childish faith. Why not childish? Because we associate childishness with immaturity, foolishness, and even sin. Right. So there's an aspect of innocence, but there's also an aspect of natural pride. Natural, even violence. No one ever teaches a child to hit. A child knows how to hit from his heart. All right, so now let's talk about how that sin got there. That's what we're talking about today sin and headship. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3 and let's look at uh, verses 8 and 9 to put our minds back in the garden here. Genesis chapter 3, and this is after they partook of the fruit. I guess it is. Interesting to point out, it never says that the fruit was an apple, just in case you have that in your mind. Apples get a bad rep, you know. Uh, Apples never did anything wrong. People are just (laughs) accusing apples, you know. Uh, It could have been all sorts of stuff. Maybe it's a fruit that has long since disappeared. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh huh. What's uh, what's that one fruit that really smells like durian or dirt? You guys know that fruit? It's probably not that one because it's, it was pleasing to the eyes and pleasing to the, you know, it looked pleasing. So who knows what it was. But let's look at um, verses 8 and 9. After they sinned, this is what happened. Who can read those two verses for us? Okay. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where art thou? Okay. So the question is... For whom does God seek in response to the act of sin? Okay, yeah, you see that, right? He called to the man, it says in verse 9. Why does God not call for Eve? Here's a legitimate question. Who sinned first? Yeah, I mean, Paul says so in the New Testament, right? Eve sinned first. So why doesn't God go after Eve? Well, okay, let's dwell on that for a moment. 
Adam was held responsible for what happened in the garden because he served as Eve's head, the leader who was held responsible. Uh, As we think about gender roles in the human life, we know, of course, there are two genders. God only made two genders, despite what anybody is saying today. We have male, we have female, end. That's the end, okay? And when God created male and female, he created male and female, obviously, with diversity. And that diversity isn't just outward physical diversity. There's also inward diversity. Men and women, generally speaking, are quite different, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, men are from Mars, and where are women from? Uh, and there's, there's the distinction. And there are also different roles based on the way God created men and women to function. Okay, so it's all tied together, and that was before the fall. It wasn't like God created Adam and Eve, and they were very, very much alike, and they didn't have any kind of distinction in their function or their role. And then the fall happened, and then that's when gender differences introduced themselves. No, it actually existed from the beginning. God's purpose in creating Adam and Eve included this idea of headship, that Adam would be the head, and Eve would be his helpmate. Yes, Stan. God had, had not created the animals yet, correct? Or am I wrong in that? At what point? When Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. They, yeah, the animals were created. And then well, Adam didn't name them until later? Correct. So he, formed man, he actually named all the animals and went through all the animals before Eve was created. That was going to be my question. Because there was no helper. And I wondered how Snake got Ah, first. Yeah. And who knows what what language was Adam speaking? Isn't that interesting to think about? Well, um, King James. Yeah. But yeah, it says that there was no helper found suitable for him, and so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and that's when you get. But he he, you know went through the animals, named them all, and. and, that was before Eve. And that was before Eve. And it wasn't like God thought, well, maybe, maybe Adam will find a real sweet gorilla. <laughs> that obviously wasn't in God's mind. Like, yeah, maybe there will be a, a, an Adam and gorilla wedding, and that, those two will become one flesh. You know, that was obviously never in God's mind. Yeah, and so what, it was, what God's doing here through the Genesis narrative is he's emphasizing things, right? And he, what is he emphasizing in this whole Adam looking for a, a helper? Well, he's emphasizing that there is no animal that's going to fill that role. There is no other creature that's going to fill that role. That God had to make a special creation out of Adam, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, that, that had to be one who was like him but different. All right, and, and you have this idea, again, of in that initial relationship, headship and helpmate. You have that going on before the fall. And that's really important because sometimes you'll run into even fellow believers who will say, well, you know, this whole like, you know, men are called to lead and women are called to submit stuff. That came after the fall. That's like an effect of sin. But when you go back and look at the Genesis narrative, no, it's not. You have the idea of headship and helping before the fall because it's all rooted in God's design. And 1 Corinthians 11 gets into that quite a bit too. It's all rooted in God's design. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, even though Eve sinned first, God comes looking for Adam. 
It says in verse 9, the Lord God called to the man. And if you just run your eyes down the rest of the, the passage there, Adam is the one who replies. And so there's a clear indication here that God is going after Adam because he was held responsible for that situation. Joe. So if the wife sins, is the husband held responsible? To a degree. Now, at the end of the day, when people stand before God in judgment, as God, they meet God as their judge, um, they're not going to get to say, well, it's actually his fault. Because that's what happens in Genesis 3, right? <laughs> Comes after Adam and says, it was the woman. The woman says, well, it was the snake, you know. And they all got cursed in the end. But there is a degree to which Adam forsook his responsibility. I mean, one of the things I pointed out last week and I point out over and over again in Genesis, the Genesis 3 narrative, Eve gave some to her husband who was with her. There he was. Almost like, you know, a woman putting a gun to her head and he's just standing there. That's interesting. Forsaking his responsibility. Because God said, that's the thing you can't do. The one thing you cannot do is eat the fruit from that tree. So he was standing there when Eve partook of the fruit. That's the way it's presented, yeah. And didn't stop her. Didn't stop her. Did, there's nothing here that says he called out. Yeah. It says when she took some, she gave to him. And he said, oh, okay, that sounds nice. So both forsaking their role, both forsaking their uh, status before God, their position before God as his children to obey him. There's so many things being forsaken in that act of sin. And Adam was the head. And he was held responsible for what happened there. More than being the head of his union with Eve, and this is where it gets us involved, Adam was also considered the head of humanity, okay? So hopefully you're following along in the notes here, jotting some thoughts down. You've got a blank there to fill in. Adam was also considered the head of humanity. Romans 5 is the clearest chapter in Scripture on this issue that Adam, as our head, took on a sinful nature that we all then inherited. And uh, we'll get into that momentarily. We'll turn over to Romans 5 in a minute. But let's uh, turn to Genesis 5, just a page or two over. Genesis chapter 5, we've looked at this passage before, but now that we've got a little more context and a bit of a different angle than we've had before, let's read it again. Genesis 5, verses 1 through, let's actually read 1 through 5. Okay, Who's got Genesis 5, 1 to 5? Dean, go ahead. This is the book of the generations of Adam and the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. God created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of the son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Ooh, what a life. He lived... About, what, 12 lifetimes there, didn't he? That's crazy. Well, um, God created Adam in his image. You see that in verse 1 that Dean just read for us. God created man, made him in the likeness of God. Okay, we covered that in previous lessons. Adam, Eve, both bearing the image of God fully. But then you get this interesting language in verse 3 here, where it says that Adam passed onto his son his own image. When Adam had lived 130, he decided... It's time to become a dad again. And uh, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. 
according to his image. And so what is this communicating to us? Well, it's communicating two basic things. One is the image of God is passed on to Seth. Because Adam is made in the image of God, and Seth here comes in the image of Adam. Well, that means the image of God is passed on. But what else is now passed on? Yeah. A fallen state. Sinful nature. Okay? So you also have this being passed on to, uh, to Seth. And that's actually, you know, just not the worst of it. That's, that's obviously bad. But it's not even the worst of it. And we'll talk more about that uh, in a moment. But are there any questions about what's going on here with Adam passing his image on to his son and the implications of that? Making well, we sense. still have that today. Mm-hmm. Yep. Fathers passing some of their image onto their son. Yes. Oh, yeah. And their daughters. Yeah. Yep. And, and we actually even tend to inherit the particular sins of our fathers, don't we? They get visited on multiple generations. I mean, there's interesting stuff going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, an interesting question becomes, okay, well, what happens to the image of God here? Because if we're saying passed on to Seth is both, well, what has happened actually to the image of God? Because there will be some people who will say, well, sin had to, had to wipe out the image of God. How can the image of God coexist with the sinful nature? That's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? But we see quite clearly in the New Testament and in other places in the Bible. In fact, you can look at just in Genesis, in Genesis 9, when capital punishment is prescribed to Noah after the flood. If a man sheds man's blood, then his blood will be shed because God made man in the image of God. There's this idea that the image continues even after the fall. And so how can we articulate what's going on? I want you to jot this down. That we have to understand that the image was not lost, okay? Clear from Scripture. The image was not lost. But something has happened. There was damage done, but there was not a total demolition. The image of God and man has been effaced, not erased. That's one way to remember that. So the image has not been taken away, eliminated, dissolved, wiped out, none of that. However, we would be foolish to say it was untouched. Because we're broken people, aren't we? We don't have the natural, not only um, desire, we don't even have the ability to love God the way we should in our natural state, do we? we? We're just born broken. And when God says, you are to love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength... Can you do that naturally on your own ability? No, you can't. And because, it's because of sin. It dwells in your body, dwells in your flesh, dwells in your heart. And we looked last week or the week before about some of these passages uh, in the New Testament that talk about how when you're a Christian, you're being renewed in the image. Romans 8 talks about God chose you to be conformed to what? The image of His Son. So in your Christian life, you are being set apart, being sanctified, being worked on, being renewed toward this this image refresh. Okay. Now, are you ever going to achieve perfect image restoration in this life? (laughs) Maybe that's what we should have called our church, perfect image restoration. (laughs) Is that a body shop? What is that? Uh, 
Perfect image restoration. Well, uh, there's coming a day when you'll be glorified, and that, at that point, you will be perfect. Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? But in this life, there's this growing in maturity. Just generally speaking, the chart goes up and to the right as God is conforming you to the image of his son. The image is already there as far as the image of God, the divine signature on your soul. But what God is doing is he's causing you to see sin in your life, to uh, mortify, kill the sin that's there by the power of his spirit. And you're being made holy. Be holy because I am holy, God says. And through the Christian life, you're growing in holiness. And that's a renewal of the image of God. Is that clicking for you? Is that good? When Adam sinned as the responsible head... He did so as a representative of humanity, all right? So um, let's go ahead and turn the page here, and this is where we're going to get into Romans 5. As we understand imputed righteousness, we understand imputed sin. Let's look at Romans 5, 12 to 19. Adam served as our legal representative. Anyone need 14? I can make copies. I think we might be good. Okay, Romans chapter 5. And would someone read uh, 12 to 19 for us? Who's got it? Who's got it? Romans 5, 12 to 19. Okay. And as Rex reads this for us, I want you to notice the, like... Um, it's not really mere image, but it's type, anti-type that's going on with Adam and Jesus. Paul's going to say over and over again, Adam gave us this, Jesus gave us this. Adam did this, Jesus did this. You're going to get that, and you need to take note of that, all right? So, uh, Romans 5, 12 to 19. Got it. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made 
righteous. All right. So you've got two, two men being, being spoken of here, Adam and Jesus. And what are you seeing over and over again with the one, Adam? What, what did he do and what did he bring about? <clears throat> Starting in verse 15. Sin is trespass. Good. Yeah, you see these words, sin, trespass, transgression. You see it over and over again. And what's the result? What did he bring about? Death. 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 Yeah, you'll see in here death, condemnation, judgment. Uh, there's really like a, like a bondage type of, of picture being painted here where people are, are affected and trapped because of the sin. Um, see in verse 17, because of his one sin, death reigned. There's like a, a rulership aspect to death now that is over people. Um, verse 18 is critical. How far does that condemnation extend? All men. Now, does that exclude you? <laughs> no, it does not. So, Put, you can put your name in there. This is something that Steve George likes to do. <laughs> I'll put my name in for the sake of this exercise. Verse 18. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to Jeremy. How does that feel as you put your name in there? Adam's sin, how many thousands of years removed? Way back when? We don't even know where the garden was. Okay. <laughs> resulted in condemnation for you. No, it's Jeremy. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's process this. Beyond merely inheriting sin from Adam, his sin is imputed to us all. So you've got this uh, thing here at the top, inherited sin versus imputed sin. Let's define this a little bit. Inherited sin is a tendency to sin passed down from Adam through the family line. Imputed sin includes the inherited sin nature, but is more. Complicit guilt based on each one's account directly from Adam. Placed on each one's account, not based on each one's account. Okay, so we've got an inherited sin. <clears throat> Basically, that's saying all people are affected by sin. And boy, is that true. Okay, affected by sin and um, there's a tendency that continues even as our fathers did. So there's a tendency to sin that exists. We're affected by sin and we have a tendency to sin even as our fathers did. Like I mentioned, sin being visited on multiple generations. You've got this idea that sin, we've inherited bad stuff from our family. And that's so true. Okay. But imputed sin is where the Bible takes it. It doesn't just stop with inherited sin. It go, kind of goes farther, doesn't it? Imputed sin being complicit guilt. Complicit guilt and you could say condemnation on our accounts. Because if there was just the idea of inherited sin and not the idea of imputed sin, we could say that people are born 
kind of neutral. There's an effect that's, you know, placed on them, and there's a tendency that they have, but they could avoid. They could dodge the bullets of the tendencies. They could fight the temptations because nothing's been imputed. It's just been inherited. What was that, Dean? Free will. They have a choice. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's this idea of they can dodge with their agency. They can dodge the tendencies and the temptations. With imputed sin, it actually goes deeper. It goes a lot deeper. We're saying that in the heart of man is guilt and condemnation from conception. Because again, look at Romans 5.12. Very important verse, Romans 5.12. Just as through one man sin entered the world. That's the Genesis narrative. And death through sin. We see that also in Genesis. Death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned. How many people in this world are affected by death? How many are personally, individually affected by death, meaning they're dealing with death in their own personal lives? And how many of us are subject to that, even from conception? All of us, right? That's because there's, the sin root goes real deep. And it's now a part of man's nature. It's now part of man's nature. And it's not only inherited from Adam, it's imputed to us, where we are, from conception, guilty and condemned. We are in Adam naturally. You have a representative naturally. You are not your own representative and that's really the folly of the idea of neutral, libertarian free will. Is that, well, I'm born into this world and I'm my own head. I'm my own representative before God. That's actually not how God looks at it. You're born into this world with a representative. It's either going to be Adam or it's going to be Jesus in your life. And naturally, it's Adam. Naturally, it's Adam. And because of that, you have sin imputed to your account. If someone objects to this idea and says, ah, I don't like that so much, well, it's fair to turn to Romans 5 and to say, do you also object to imputed righteousness? Because what's the nature of imputed righteousness? What does Christ give us according to this passage we just look at, looked at? We see what Adam gives us, but what does Christ give us? Righteousness. Okay. Where? Where does it go? Where, where is it placed? In life. Yeah, it's, it's practical, so it does play out in our lives. But where does it go first? From the moment of belief. Where does Jesus' righteousness go in relation to the believer from the moment of belief? Goes to our account. Very good, very good. You see this? Condemnation from Adam is on our accounts. But in Jesus, we now get righteousness on our accounts. How can you be innocent before God from the moment of belief, from the very first moment of belief? That's because God just switched out your representative head, didn't he? Your representative head was giving you this before, and now Jesus, who's the better Adam, isn't he? He gives you this. He gives you this. So instead of condemnation, you have righteousness. Instead of guilt, you have what? What's the opposite of guilt? <laughs> what does the judge say? You're either guilty or... Innocent. Good. Too many of you have been in court, apparently. You have, 
You now have innocence before God with imputed righteousness. Instead of guilt, you have innocence. That is now the nature of your relationship with God. You no longer stand before him as guilty before the judge. You stand before him as innocent before the judge. Mandy. It's not just that our sins are forgiven and we have like a zero balance. Correct. He actually imputes his righteousness onto us and gives us a positive credit. Yep, that's exactly right. So you've got... You're saying my sin doesn't go into a closet and come back out later? (laughs) Yes, I am happily telling you that. Yes, yes, indeed. Okay, so you have a line here that represents zero. Um, Think of your bank account. Okay. Is it ideal to be living down here? (laughs) No, it is not. And many of us have spent time down there, right? Okay, well, you want to be up here in the the green or in the black, I guess, technically is, is right, isn't it? Okay. Well, with God, you've got this going on. And how, how deep does it go? How far negative? What's, uh, let's see. That's the symbol for infinity, right? Infinitely debt. In debt. How deep is deep? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's whatever the deepest is that could ever be, that's how deep it is. Now, when you are forgiven of your sins at salvation... God obviously comes along and does this, right? And takes this away. Hallelujah. Does the story end there? No. Because, I'm just going to use green. What, what gets placed on your account? A gift. It's a not gift. Payroll, it's a gift. Yes, you get this, don't you? The righteousness of Jesus? And how righteous is Jesus? Absolutely. <laughs> so, how far up are we going? Infinitely. See that? Some people think he forgives you and you go up to zero. And that's good news. That's not good news. Because that'll last for what, a day? A minute? And then you're going back in the red. And a lot of times they'll say, okay, now here's what you got to do to get back up to zero. That's no way to live. And that's no gospel. That's not good news. That might be news, but it's not good news. The gospel is... He doesn't just forgive us our debt. He gives us infinite, positive righteousness on our account that will never, ever be taken away. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing, anybody, nothing that anybody can do to you that will affect the righteousness that's on your account. All people have a representative, a representative head. And for Christians, if Christ, if Jesus is not our representative, we would not have salvation at all. So again, to go with this, Adam lives down here. And Jesus, he lives up here. Okay? When you're born into this world, you are not born... You're certainly not born up here. You're not born on the line. No one's born on the line. What the Bible's teaching us is you're born down here. You're with Adam. You're not on good terms with God from birth... Because Adam is your head. And because of his sin imputed to you as your representative, there is complicit guilt and there's condemnation on your account. John Frame says this, If we object to God's act of condemning us in Adam, we should equally object to his justifying us in Christ. That's Romans 5, right? If you're going to say, well, that's not fair. I can't have sin on my account. 
from Adam? Well, then you don't get righteousness from Jesus either. Because Paul, you, you can't separate Paul's argument here. How many different ways does Paul say it? Adam gives us this, Jesus gives us that. Adam was your head, now Jesus is your head. Just as Christ is the representative head in the Christian salvation, Adam is the representative head in man's natural state. So Jesus gives us justification. We were saved. Adam gives us condemnation in our natural state. Okay? Jeremy, can you talk on verse 13? Can you clarify that? For sin indeed was in the world before the law hmm. was even, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yeah, that's a difficult one. Um, when, when was the law given? Let's just break down the basic facts here. When was the law given? When well, Moses. Moses. Yes, the law came through Moses. So it was much later. And it was given to who? Israelites. Okay. Yeah, the law was given to Israel. Okay. So where is Paul taking our mind in verse 13? Um, he's taking our mind back to pre-law times, and actually uh, much of this would cover pre, um, pre-Israel times. And he's saying that the law comes around to define the holiness that man is held accountable for. Because even though the law was given to Israel... The law still has jurisdiction over all people to a degree, right? I mean, the Ten Commandments, you can't say, well, well, I'm actually an Egyptian, so I can lie. God, God allows me to lie. But if I was an Israelite, I wouldn't be allowed to lie. That's not it. Uh, the law is a reflection of the holiness of God. Some call the law the holiness code. And we know that at the end of the law, there are curses there that say, if someone rejects this law, he is to be cursed and he's to die. Okay, so you have that going on. But the fact remains that before the law, people were still dying. Remember the flood? Mm-hmm. And that was before the law. And that was God directly doing it. It wasn't natural causes for 99.9% of the people who died in the flood. It was God coming along supernaturally, bringing death into their lives. So verse 14, where it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him to come. There's a recognition of even though the law didn't exist until thousands of years after Adam, we don't have an exact timeline. Moses is about 1400. And however old you think the earth is, just add that many years and get to 1400. And that's how long there was before the law. Well, just because there was no law, that doesn't mean sin was absent. There was still disobedience and rebellion in man's heart because what you have is sin inherited by each generation and even imputed. And man naturally, even without the law, man naturally was going anti-law. Even without the standard of holiness, men were still sinning. And so the point that Paul is making here is that it's not... Man was neutral until the law came, and then the law is what spurred us on to sin. No, no, no. The law, he says in this very letter, the law is holy and just and good. Okay? And yes, the law does produce in us the desire to sin. That's true. He also says that. I didn't know not to covet until the law says thou shalt not covet. And now I want it. Now I want to do it. But you can't say our sin nature is tied to the law. It's tied to Adam. The law is not our representative. Adam is our representative in our natural state. And so... 
at a base level, that's what he's saying, though that is a difficult passage, those two verses, uh, 13 and 14. Thank you. Yes? Question. Yes? If there is no law, how can there be sin? Because who says what's right and what's wrong? Well, what is sin? Sin is what? The same law. Hey. Um, when, and well, what is the mark? Standard of holiness. Okay. Is the law the sum total of the standard of holiness? No. Because who's, who's higher than the law, even? Yeah. Or Jesus, the life of Jesus? I mean, didn't he go above and beyond the law? And isn't that now the Christian standard? The Christian standard is Jesus, who... He taught us to love our enemies. Do you know that's not found in the law of Moses? So he gave us something higher. And so actually, sin is just any time you transgress God's standard, whatever has been revealed. And uh, so, for instance, you go back to the garden, was uh, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Was that a part of the law of Moses? Well, no. But was that their standard? Yeah. You go again to Noah after they came off the boat and they get the prescription for capital punishment. You shouldn't murder. And if someone murders, that person's life is to be taken from him. Okay, that wasn't the law of Moses. But God is revealing over and over again throughout different ages or you could say dispensations throughout history these, these different standards that, man are, that men are to meet. And it culminates really with the person of Jesus. He's the ultimate standard. You can't get any higher than that. The law of Moses is below. And we're going to see that in 2 Corinthians here in a few weeks where uh, Paul talks about how we are ministers of a new covenant that's, that's better than that old covenant defined by the law. And so the standard is actually even higher than that. And any time man transgressed God's standard, that was sin. Okay? Other thoughts or questions? Any of that? Okay, MacArthur and Mayhew from their book, Biblical Doctrine. In sum, both men, Adam and Christ, are seen as representatives of humanity. And for both, the effects of their actions are placed on others. Adam is the representative of sinful humanity, and Jesus is the representative of righteous humanity. So, don't feel bad for Adam. He did it willfully, but that's... How Bible, uh, the Bible describes Adam, the representative of sinful humanity. Wow, how would you like to have that, that position? Even though Paul called, him, called himself the chief of sinners, there's only one Adam. and We're all naturally born down here with Adam as our head, not Paul or anybody else, Adam. All right, let me give you a couple of examples because I know that uh, it can be a little bit difficult to wrap your mind around the representative headship stuff as the Bible describes it. But uh, there are a couple authors here who do a good job giving us um, examples from elsewhere in our lives. The first is from Heath Lambert, and this is how he uh, describes um, the representative headship in a, it's a book on counseling, but uh, he does a good job describing this. He says, Paul is teaching here about representation. He is indicating that the entire human race came to be sinners in Adam because he represented them in his own sinfulness. All right, here's his example. This kind of representation happens all the time in our world. 
My kids attend school every day because I represented them by making a decision about their education. That decision affects them every day of their life, even when they are unhappy about it. A few years ago, my senator, Mitch McConnell, led the United States Senate to pass a bill that I was diametrically opposed to. So I registered my disagreement with a letter and a call to his Senate office. But Senator McConnell voted against my wishes. The bill passed, and President George W. Bush signed it into law. These men represented my interests even when I was opposed to what they were doing. The president and Congress can send troops overseas to fight in armed conflicts. Because of this principle of representation, the world understands the United States to be at war, even when significant groups of Americans are opposed to sending our troops. It's hard to imagine life functioning without the principle of representation. We are unhappy when representation, or we are happy, rather, when representation works in our favor, as it does with Christ's representation of us and his life, his death for sin. We are unhappy when the same principle works against us, as in Adam's work in the garden. The principle is in place, however, whether we are happy or unhappy with it. Because God created this reality, we can trust him that it is good. Adam's sin in the garden created many consequences for the human race that impact us all today. And then he goes on to describe some more about what he's doing in the book. But does that make sense about representation? Surely you've disagreed with your elected officials who represent you. But what does the headline say? Utah passes this bill. I'm a Utahan and I didn't want that. Well, your elected officials represent you. Right? And this is our decision, even though we don't like it. And that this whole movement, it started, I think, probably with President Obama. But you saw it especially with President Trump and now again with President Biden. Not my president. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> Unless you're going to become Canadian sometime soon. He's your president. Okay, so this one is... Um, this, from, this one is from Charles Ryrie. It's a little bit of a different take, still illustrating headship. He says, Adam's sin was imputed to each member of the human race because each member of the human race actually sinned in, in Adam when Adam sinned. Okay? And that's going back to verse 12. All members of the human race sinned in Adam. Death spread to all men because all sinned. We were all in Adam. Uh, kind of like, you know, in the Bible where it says uh, Levi paid his tithes to Melchizedek because he was in the loins of Abraham. Isn't that weird? But it was Abraham. Levi wasn't born yet. Levi would be the, what, the great-grandson of Abraham? But he was paying tithes to Melchizedek because he was in the loins of Abraham? Well, you sinned in Adam because technically we were all in the loins of Adam, weren't we? That's how God describes these things. All right, Ryrie goes on. I came across an illustration of imputation in a sad experience a former student had. This man, Bill, shared the expenses of a ride at uh, right home at Christmas time in Joe's car. On the way, another car went through a stop sign and hit Joe's car broadside. At the time of the accident, Joe was driving and Bill was asleep in the car. Because Bill was seriously and permanently injured, he sued to collect damages from the owner of the other car. But that owner, or his insurance company, tried to prove negligence on Joe's part. Bill's attorney wrote to him in part as follows, quote, If the jury finds that Joe was negligent, it will undoubtedly be imputed to you, and you cannot recover. 
I don't think that there's anything that we can do to change that situation now. So Joe was asleep, Bill or Bill was asleep in the passenger seat, Joe was driving, and Bill was permanently injured by the other car. Well, <coughs> Joe, who was driving, they were saying was negligent and he didn't avoid. And so Bill, who was asleep and got permanently injured, wasn't going to be able to recoup the damages because the driver was negligent. What linked Bill to Joe and his possible negligence? It was the fact that Bill had shared expenses for the ride. Money joined Bill to Joe and to Joe's actions. Humanity joined all of us to Adam and to Adam's sin. We all share in Adam's sin and Adam's guilt. We are all equally guilty and in need of a remedy for our sin. Okay. I would fight it. Yeah, I know you would, Joe. You're a fighter. I don't know how that would work out for you, though. <laughs> so so all, all the time in life, we deal with this headship stuff, don't we? And imp even imputation. The point that Ryrie was illustrating is really imputation. That Joe's negligence is imputed to you because you shared expenses. You helped pay for his negligence. Like, Whoa, I was asleep, dude. Doesn't matter. His negligence imputed to you. Okay? So in sum... Natural man hasn't merely inherited a propensity to sin, but rather he has been imputed with a guilty status as a sinner. The last blank you have on the sheet. Natural man has been imputed with a guilty status as a sinner. Okay? And that's the last slide I have today. We're finishing about nine minutes early, but there's time for questions and anything else that you want to share. I didn't get the links on the last week's, uh, some of those. Okay. Where do you want to start with that? Um, I guess the, we got the miss, the mark, and then the next two, I okay. just leave. Well, who can answer this? The first sin was committed by? Satan. Satan. Okay, and where did his sin originate from? Within. Within, yeah. God didn't create sin. Um, down underneath Isaiah 14, as a creature, he sought to take the place of creator. Boy, that comes up all the time, doesn't it? The distinction between creature and creator. Very important to keep that in mind. The next sin in the biblical account was committed in the garden. And their sin gave wrong answers to what is true, what is right, and who am I? Okay. Other thoughts or questions about any of this? Okay. You guys doing okay? Relatively speaking. I was asking for why we thought we did. You can just say, "Oh, Adam did it first. Yeah, right. How did how did that work out in the garden when they were pointing fingers? Huh? <laughs> Didn't make it too far. Yeah, Virginia. I was really uh, kind of went like this last week when you were talking about us not being able to be uh, gods of our own worlds. Oh, yeah. I love that. 
Yeah. It's actually a blessed thing. You'll forever be a creature, not a creator. Yeah, but uh, it isn't what I have, have the understanding of if I live a perfect life. Uh -huh. And I used to think, how on earth am I ever going to live a perfect life when I have all this stuff going on in my world? Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Because most, some of it, at least some of it, most of it, I didn't respond to the way I probably should have. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I won't tell you what. But anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow it's, uh, it's kind of taken back. And so I was talking to Cheryl about this. I'm going to start writing this stuff then. Yeah, good. It's, um, you know, sometimes when you grow up with false notions of God, I shouldn't say sometimes, pretty much every time, you kind of get the wires soldered in the wrong places in your brain about what is, what's going to happen, what is true. And so it's a process of going back through and seeing what God has said. I remember thinking many, many times during my lifetime, now this is not God. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not yep. going to listen to this and I get a lot of books and read a lot of different things and I've since learned that is not right. Yes, absolutely. And how much more precious to us is God when he's the only one? <coughs> the only creator. If, there, if he is just a God and a creator from an infinitely long line of gods and creators, how precious is our God? Gee, I don't have to worry about being a goddess anymore. <laughs> no, you don't. All you have to worry about is focusing on the one true God, the creator, and worshiping him rightly. Because if you think of like a mass conveyor belt, you know, think of uh, the I Love Lucy scene with the conveyor belt, you know, <laughs> and there they are. Yeah. All those chocolates are all these deities that have existed, and that just goes on for infinity. There they are. Well, how, much, how special is one compared to the other? One probably does a better job than the other. But if there's only one, we're talking like the Holy Grail, right? There's only one. How much more precious is the only one? You think of a baseball card or something or, a, you know, a, some kind of collectible. It's one of one versus one out of 1,500. How much more expensive is that one of one going to be? So God, being the only creator there ever has been, ever will be, he is infinitely valuable to us. And to say he's the one now as believers who dwells within, that's amazing. And how precious and how valuable are you to him that he would die for you and desire you to be his children and his family. Cool stuff. So that should put us in the right frame of mind as we go to sing songs of worship this morning, right? <laughs> sing a little bit louder today. So, All right, very good. Well, we'll stop a little early. Have a little break today. Good job. Good class.